If you haven't turned in your Bibles there already, please do so. Turn to Zephaniah, a small three-chapter minor prophet. Zephaniah is the last of the minor prophets before the people of God are taken away entirely into captivity. The northern kingdom, Israel, has already been taken away. The Assyrians have conquered Samaria and taken them captive and held them under their oppression. And Zephaniah is one of the last prophets communicating to the people of God, the people of Judah in Jerusalem. At their doom, their captivity is yet to come as well, and it's still coming. The passage that Braden read for us this morning captures for us, though, a glimpse of God's blessing and his promise and his restorative power for his people, for those who will respond and listen to God and his word and his appeal. But the first two chapters of Zephaniah are much darker, much darker. In fact, we would describe it this way. Chapters one and two are probably some of the most vivid and explicit and powerful words of God's anger and disapproving and judgmental wrath against sin that we have in the Old Testament and maybe even in the entire Bible. It's graphic, it's vivid, and we're going to look at some of that in a second. But even as we talked about last week on Easter, many times it's difficult for us to see the beauty of something until we see the great horror of its opposite. You know, there's a rather famous photographer, um, you probably know, Ansel Adams, and known for the black and white photography and the beautiful scenic images. But why do we appreciate those kind of images? Why do we appreciate that kind of photograph and artwork? Because we start to see the contrast between light and dark. It's so stark. It compels us. It draws us in. We're amazed by this contrast. Here in this little book of Zephaniah, we see this contrast and we're taken to the depths of the anger and the wrath of God against sin and against people who oppose themselves to God. And then we're brought to the place of highest joy and understanding and the transformative grace of God that's open to all who will come and look and turn to him. So there's two sides to the gospel message. Most of us are very, very comfortable with the side of the gospel message of God's love and grace. We, we love to talk about God's love and grace. We, in fact, we love to share that with other people. We're very quick to do that. In fact, that's what we want to be quick on our lips to communicate and to share that with others about God's love and grace and mercy to them. We delight in that. Yet there's also another side of the gospel coin. And it's true of God's character. He's a God of wrath and a God of justice as well. And it's just as true as the side of the coin of the gospel message of his love and grace. And so we, we need to understand both. And I'll, I'll just say most people, most Christians, most pastors don't like, we don't enjoy proclaiming the wrath of God. We don't necessarily enjoy getting up and preaching about it, even though you may think we do sometimes. It's not a pleasant message. It's not an easy thing for us to consider the destruction of human life. It's a difficult thing. It's a hard thing for us to come to grips with the reality that God will judge sin. And the ultimate 
punishment and judgment for sin is death and destruction for eternity. This is a hard message. But as we understand it, we begin to see the beauty of his grace and mercy in a way that we have never seen before. So we must understand it. And so Zephaniah comes in with his message. And even Jesus, who came, right, as the very demonstration of God's love and mercy to humanity. He came as the very um, picture and essence of God's love to all humanity. Even Jesus says in Matthew 24, he says, there will be a day. There will be a day with great distress that's unequaled from the beginning of the world until now and never to be equaled again. There will be a day of wrath and judgment that will be unmatched. Verse 22 of Matthew 24. If those days, Jesus said, had not been cut short, no one would survive. But for the sake of the elect, God's people, those days will be shortened. I believe it's actually impossible for us to truly understand the depth of God's love for us. Until we understand the greatness of the impending judgment that awaits us if it weren't for God's intervention. Zephaniah gives the people of Judah and the nations and us today this hard and difficult message of the coming judgment of God against sin. It's coming, he says. Zephaniah portrays God as angry against sin. Most of us aren't going to like that image. His judgment against sin will be complete and total. So look with me in Zephaniah chapter 1, verses 2 and 3, and look to see how this description begins with this intense glimpse into the judgment of God. Zephaniah writes the words of God that have come to him. God says, I will utterly sweep away everything from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. I will sweep away man and beast. I will sweep away the birds from the heaven and the fish of the sea and the rubble with the wicked. I will cut off mankind from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. And we might read those words and, and be reminded of an earlier story in Scripture, the story of the flood, when God swept the face of the earth with his judgment. But this judgment, the way that Zephaniah records it for us in the words of God, is actually greater than the flood. It's actually a reversal of creation. Just look at those verses again and notice what, what Zephaniah does and how the Lord speaks. He starts with man and beast. Then he moves to the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea. He says everything will be swept away in God's judgment. This is how serious it is. God's judgment will actually be an act of uncreation. Why? So that he can then recreate. It will be a flood of fire, a flood of judgment, as Peter talks about in Second Peter. But then there will be the emergence of the new heavens and the new earth and the new creation. So part of Zephaniah's message is for us to understand this, that the judgment of God is actually a purifying judgment, so that at the end of it we emerge as a pure people and a new creation and a new heavens and a new earth with hope and with life that we have never experienced before. So just as a judgment is going to come that we've never seen before, so also will there be an experience of life that we've never seen before. It's an amazing thing. So Zephaniah prophesies. But right here at the beginning, even in verse 1, we catch a glimpse of Zephaniah's message. Even in his name, right? I mean, you might have a good study Bible there in front of you, and so you might see this note that Zephaniah's name means that Yahweh or the Lord has hidden or protected. There's a glimpse of God's 
mercy and grace, even in the mention of Zephaniah's name. Then he mentions his, his heritage, his genealogy. And it's unique because it goes all the way back, not one or two generations, but four generations back to this one named Hezekiah. And we see this most likely to be the King Hezekiah, who was a good king, a good ruler in Israel, who brought about reforms and, and sought to bring people back to true worship of the God of Israel. And then we see in the days of Josiah, this boy king who had a passion and a desire to bring the people back to true worship of God as well, just like Hezekiah. So we see the glimpse of grace. We see the glimpse of mercy, even in the one who's proclaiming the message. Maybe God will hide his people. Maybe God will protect his people from this wrath that's to come. Maybe God himself will intervene. And that's what we begin to see. Zephaniah's main topic is this. It's called the day of the Lord. It's a term that Joel has used in our study of of the minor prophets so far as well. But we think of the day of the Lord and Israel thought of the day of the Lord many times as just simply a day of blessing and hope for the people of God. But Zephaniah assures them that unless they respond to God and his word, it will be day of judgment for his people as well. So look at verse 7 with me in chapter 1. Here's Zephaniah's message to his people and to us. Zephaniah 1 verse 7, he cries out, Be silent before the Lord God, for the day of the Lord is near. This day of judgment is coming, and it's close. For them, there was a very immediate situation at hand. The, The Babylonian peoples were going to come and destroy them. Beginning in 597 and then in 586, even when Daniel and his friends were taken into captivity. Then in verse 17, the day of the Lord is coming. And why is it coming? It's coming because of your sin and all the sin of humanity. So in verse 17 of chapter 1, Zephaniah writes, I will bring distress on mankind, God says, so that they will walk like the blind because they have sinned against the Lord. They are going to be blinded by my judgment because they're sinful. And ultimately, Zephaniah's message is this. The day of the Lord is coming, and it's coming on your sin. So turn, repent, and seek the Lord's favor. God cannot tolerate sin. Therefore, judgment will come. But perhaps, perhaps, if you turn, And seek the Lord's favor and repent of your sin, there will be deliverance. And we begin to see that unfold in chapter 2, at the end, in chapter 3. Us, though, as Christians, have to stop. And we can't read Zephaniah as though Jesus has never come. We need to read Zephaniah with this perspective as well, that God has taken on flesh. He has entered into history already. He has emerged as the deliverer for us. And so as we read Zephaniah, we don't read Zephaniah as a hopeless people. We actually read Zephaniah with great hope, but we must hear the message and be sensitive to it as well. So today, as Christians or as those that know the truth of the gospel, we must remember this. You cannot escape judgment either unless you turn to Christ and run to Christ. In fact, we have a song that we've sung before, Run to Christ. And find your safety in Him. Run to Christ and find forgiveness of sin. Run to Christ and find deliverance. 
Because here's the reality. You can't escape this judge. You can only run for shelter and cover in the right place. So in in chapter 1, God proclaims his judgment on his people for their sin. And Zephaniah begins to unpack this in a most vivid way for us that we must take note of. We already read the description in in verses 2 and verses 3. But look what God says through Zephaniah now in verse 4. I will stretch out my hand against Judah and against all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and I will cut off from this place the remnant of Baal in the name of the idolatrous priests, along with the priests, those who bow down on the roofs to the host of heaven, those who bow down and swear to the Lord and yet swear by Milcom or, or Moloch, this God that they worship with child sacrifices, and, and those who have turned back from following the Lord, who do not seek the Lord or inquire of him. So Zephaniah begins to lay out the sins of the people. He says, your judgment of God is coming, but it's for sins because you've sinned. And he lays it out. And you can just look through those verses. And then I'm going to pull in some other passages that help us see the sin that God is judging them for. God is judging those in Judah who practice idolatry, namely the priests and the leaders. Verse 4. Verse 5. God will judge those in Judah who mix the worship of God with the worship of other gods. We call this syncretism. This happens around us all the time where we say we worship Jesus, but we don't really follow his word. We don't really obey his ways. We want to do things our way and we mix it. God will judge those in Judah who who actually reject and turn away from the faith of their fathers. They, They don't see any need to recognize that God is at work in their daily lives. They reject the reality that they're totally dependent on God in verse 6. They turn their back on him. That's one of the first hints of of an understanding for us, so children and teens and college students, this, is, this book is for you this morning as well. Because there's no such thing as a second generation born again Christian. You must embrace and turn and look to this God as well. In verse 8, God will judge those who look to the nations for strength rather than to God. These unholy alliances, they look to other nations for their protection and for their safety rather than to God. What do you look to, look to for your protection and safety and provision? God will judge those, verse 9, who practice violence and deceit for their own profit and gain. We as Americans pride ourselves in our capitalism, right? Yeah, we can make a lot of money. We are the wealthiest nation in the world, and we pride ourselves in that. We use that language. But has that sort of pride and arrogance clouded our minds to how we're actually gaining our wealth and gaining our power and gaining our influence both here and in the nations? Are we abusing others? Are we oppressing others? Are we being deceitful? Are we all about ourselves and our own gain, our own materialism? Then God says he will judge those who refuse to listen to divine instruction. When we get to chapter 3, we'll see that. And those who ignore his warnings. Those who do not draw near to their God, even though you know you should. Then God says he will judge those who are in leadership. Those who are in economic power and those who are in civil power and those who are in religious power. Why? Because they've used their, their positions for their own glory, for their own advancement, and not for the glory and the name of Christ. We see that in chapter 3 as well. And then in verse 12 of chapter 1, look at it with me. God's judgment here comes to those who pr- presume 
that God is indifferent toward their sin. Look at verse 12. I will punish the men who are complacent. Those who say in their hearts, the Lord will not do good, nor will he do ill. We're just going to live our lives the way we want to because you say that God's active and at work, but he's going to do nothing. This is a poor view of God. It is a wrong view of God. Then chapter 1, verse 18. God will judge those who put their trust in anything else but him. God will judge them for putting their trust in anything but him. This is the sin of unbelief, just wholehearted unbelief against their God. See, these people have sinned. They've sinned in multiple ways. In fact, if you counted it up, I think it's something like over 24-some sins that Zephaniah lists out that God will judge. And in chapter 3, he lists 12 out specifically for the people living in Jerusalem. God will judge those who turn their backs on him. God will judge those who have sinned. And we say, well, that's not fair. God has just laid out his case against humanity, against Judah. We have sinned. We are sinners. We are idolaters. For the wages of sin is death, Paul writes. We are guilty. All of us have fallen short of the glory of God. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned every one of us to our own way. We all are sinners under the judgment of God. We're unbelievers, haters of God, and disobedient. The wrath of God is rightfully falling on sinners. But it's an amazing thing. Verse 12 again, look at it. God declares his total judgment against those who sin. I mean, the picture just seems to get worse and worse. And that's the point. That's the rhetorical effect of Zephaniah's message. Is there any escape? Look, verse 12. Look at what God, look at what God does. He says, at that time, God says, I will search Jerusalem with lamps and I will punish the men who are complacent. Those people who are complacent. We have some police officers and military personnel here, and you've probably been on raids, or you understand this, but it, the imagery is like this. There's a police force coming in with their spotlights coming into the darkness to uncover all of the contraband, to seek it out. And here's what God's going to do, and he says, I'm going to leave nothing uncovered. You think you're getting away with it? You think your sin is going unnoticed? God says, I'm going to shine my light on that sin. I'm going to reveal the darkness and I'm going to judge it. And for the Christian, there's actually hope in this. That God is not blind. He's not passive. Don't buy into the lie of our culture and our world that our God is far off and distant and not active and not involved and not here and not present. He is. He's active. He's always active. He's not passive. And he will intervene. He will act at the right time. Don't buy into this false view of God. Children, teens, don't imagine that God does not care or see. Fathers, men, don't go astray thinking nobody cares and nobody sees What's going on in your life and in your mind, privately? 
God will come. Because it's rooted in his character, right? Our God is holy. Our God is just. And we rejoice in that when we see other people, other wicked people, judged and condemned, and we rejoice in that. But when we see that the justice of God might fall on us, we say that's not fair. God is not passive. He is just. And so we must understand this. We must hear the call of Zephaniah to not be complacent about our own sins, not be complacent about our own idolatry and how we turn against God, but we must come and we must respond to this message that he's asking us. Paul writes in Romans 2, he says this to the the church and to the people in Rome. He says, now we know that God's judgment against those who do, do such things is based on truth. And here's the truth. They sin against God. So when you, a mere human being, pass judgment on them and yet do the same things, do you think that you're going to escape the judgment of God? Or do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness and his forbearance and his patience for you? Not realizing that God's kindness, his mercy, is intended to lead you to repentance? But because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath when his righteous judgment will be revealed. But for those who are self-seeking and those who reject the truth and follow evil, there will be wrath and anger. There will be trouble and distress for every human being who does evil, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. And then Paul says, God is not a respecter of persons. God is not a respecter of persons, either in his justice or in his love and mercy for those who turn and repent. But, chapter 2, verse 1, we begin to see some of the good news of Zephaniah's message. Look at it. Chapter 2, verse 1. Zephaniah calls out to the people of Judah and Jerusalem. He says, gather together. Yes, gather, O shameless nation. He recognizes their sin, but he calls them to gather. Gather before the decree takes effect. Gather while there's still time, before the day passes away like chaff, before it's blown away. Gather before there comes upon you the burning anger of the Lord. And the imagery is that he's calling them to gather together like like stalks of wheat that are dried. And and the judgment day of the Lord is coming like a fire. And and they're going to be consumed if they don't respond. So verse 3, he says, seek the Lord. Seek the Lord, all you humble of land who do his just commands, who who seek his righteousness. The idea is seek the favor of this Lord. Seek his favor. Seek his grace, all you who are humble. Seek righteousness. Seek humility. And perhaps, he says in verse 3, I love this, perhaps you may be hidden on the day of the anger of the Lord. Perhaps. And that's not calling into question God's mercy and grace. It's calling into question our desire to turn and to seek the Lord. And he brings, Zephaniah brings his name into the picture. You might be hidden by the Lord. One of my college professors made this observation. You can't really escape the judgment of God. You can't outrun it. You can't flee from the judge. He's all-seeing. He's all-knowing. He's everywhere. But here's what he said. The only way that you can escape the judgment of the righteous judge 
is by fleeing to the judge. You can't get away from him. You've got to get to him. You have to flee to the source of the judgment. In our minds, we're, we see the law or we see traffic lights, uh, police lights behind us. And what is our first reaction? Is it really to stop? I hope so. Some of you want to run. I think I did this once with the campus police at my college. They had no real authority. (laughs) But do we realize that the judge is actually the one that we need to run to? As As we considered last week, Jesus on the cross is... His arms out wide. Do we see him as the one saying, come? I have taken this judgment for you. And I will actually mete out the judgment on you unless you come. See, this is why Jesus came. This is why the second person of the Trinity humbled himself and took on flesh for us. So that he could bring about this transformation. He could bring about this new birth. He could bring about a total, totally new way of life and thinking. And that he could offer salvation to all who will come. So are we trying to escape the judge of all the earth? Teens, college students, are you trying to just get away with your sin? And hope that he never notices. We got to pray for one another that we'll change our thinking in this way. When sin is revealed in our life, when, when we are convicted, when, when God by his grace points out areas where we are turning from him, when we are worshiping other things rather than Jesus alone, we, instead of running into that sin and trying to hide it from God, we need to turn back to Him and fall on our faces in confession and repentance and say, God, have mercy on me. Forgive me, for I am a sinner. And the judge of all the earth and the judge of all humanity stands with His arms open waiting for you to come. Will you flee to Him? Flee to Christ. This is Zephaniah's appeal to the people not to run, but to turn to his God. Look with me in chapter 2, verses 4. We're not going to read through the, the whole chapter, but just catch a glimpse of this. Zephaniah begins to lay out that this judgment of God isn't falling just on the people of God in Jerusalem, but it's falling on the entire world. It's, it's universal, which we've already seen a little bit. But he goes through and he begins to call out the nations that are around him. The Philistines, Philistia, the southwest side, Moab and Ammon, the eastern side, Ethiopia or Cush. Maybe parts of Egypt are in mind here, the southern side, Assyria to the north. All these mighty nations that are around them and the judgment of God falls on them. Mixed with it is promise to the people of God that there, uh, there's actually going to be a remnant who 
indwells these places and that is brought to joy and even prosperity where these nations are removed. But God lays out his judgment against these nations through Zephaniah. And again, you can hear the people saying, like we've seen already in the minor prophets, they're sort of cheering them on. Yeah, that's right. That's right. They're the ones that need to turn and seek God. Yeah, they're the ones that need to you know, turn away from their sin and their idolatry. But we're okay. We're good. Isn't this our tendency as the people of God? Those that we, we call ourselves Christian, we come every Sunday, we read the word, we, we're okay, we're good. But it's like, it's like God in this chapter is, is taking his rifle or taking the artillery. And those of you that have hunted or been in battle, you know this is like where you're sighting in your weapon. You're gauging it in. You're shooting at targets and trying to zone in on the thing that you really want to hit. And he's shooting at these other nations, so to speak. And then he comes down at the very end and he turns his gaze and attention back to Jerusalem. And it's like they're caught off guard in chapter 3, verse 1. Look at this. Zephaniah goes on and he says, Woe to her who is rebellious and defiled, the oppressing city. And I think probably at this point they're still, they're still sort of cheering in their mind. Yeah, that's right. The Philistines, Moab, Ammon, Ethiopia, yeah, they're violent. They're oppressors. Syria, yeah, Nineveh, we've read of all their hostility and all their violence. Verse 2 of chapter 3, she listens to no voice. She accepts no correction. Oh, wait, but here it is. She does not trust in the Lord. She does not draw near to her God. And the people of Jerusalem and Judah begin to see that the, the aim of God's words are back on them. See, the, this message of Zephaniah is not totally or really for the nations. It's really for the people of God. Are there universal implications? Of course there are. We're going to see that as, as the nations are being brought in and as a remnant is being drawn from all over the world to worship God and truth and to honor him. But the message is for God's people. And he's trying to shake us awake. Have we become complacent? Even God's people, he describes God's people as not looking like God's people. They look like the nations. They act like the nations. They talk like the nations. They worship like the nations. They sacrifice their children. They worship the Baals. They give in to, to um, all kinds of temptations and bribery and take advantage of one another, manipulate one another. They seek to climb on top of one another for their own glory, their own power, their own honor. They look just like the nations. They don't look like the people of God. They're rebellious. And here, here's where he lists out their 12 sins in verses 1 through 4 again. They're oppressors, they're rebellious, they're defiled, they obey no one, they accept no correction, no instruction. They do not trust the Lord. They don't draw near to their God. Their leaders, their officials, they're like roaring lions. They devour the people, her rulers are evening wolves who devour everything. They take advantage. They exploit. Her prophets are arrogant and treacherous men. They're using the word for their own means. 
They're using their position for their own power. Her priests profane the sanctuary. They, they, they walk in the idolatry. They walk in the syncretism. They introduce it to the people. They confuse the people in what it means to truly worship God. And her priests do violence to the law. They, they create a law that's, that's incapable of showing God's holiness and grace to others. And instead, they lift up a message that does not communicate the God of the Bible. At the very least, I know this, this picture describes, at least in a snapshot, at least in some pockets, our culture today, our American culture. The question, though, is this. Does it describe us here? Instead of always looking outward, can we look in? Do we need to get honest with ourselves about how we're living our life, how we are living our lives, either trusting God or not, or saying, yeah, I come to church on Sunday, but really you live like a practical atheist throughout the week. Where we, we don't recognize that we need God every day. We don't live in dependence on God. We don't pray. We don't feast on his word. We don't cry out to him for the nations. We don't cry out for the souls of others. We don't cry out for the, the souls of our children and teens and college. We don't, we don't as parents seek to model that we love God above things. Children, teenagers, college students, this is an especially important message for you. Look at verse 6 to 7. I want you to see these verses. Look at verse 7 especially. I said, surely you will fear, fear me. Surely if you've seen the judgment that's come on the other nations, verse 6, surely if you've seen that, then you will fear me. You will accept correction. You will accept my warning. So that then your dwelling would not be cut off according to all that I've appointed against you. But here's the condemnation on the generation that follows. Instead of responding in repentance and seeking God, here's how they responded. And here's what I fear this next generation is doing as they respond. They're all the more eager to make their deeds corrupt. Are we just content to just continue to assimilate our lives into the culture around us? Are you content when you hear the warnings from your parents, the warnings from your pastors, the warning from the word of God? Are you content just to ignore it and just continue in your way? The question is, where do we stand with this God? Zephaniah's message is that you cannot escape the judgment of God unless you turn to God. You cannot escape the judgment of God unless you turn and run to Christ. And in chapter 3, verse 9, here's where we begin to see how God does this. He cries out, verse 8, Therefore wait for me, declares the Lord, for the day when I rise up to seize the prey. For here's my decision, God says, is to gather the nations, to assemble the kingdoms, to pour out upon them my indignation, all my burning anger. He's going to gather them together to pour out his judgment. For in the fire of my jealousy, all the earth shall be consumed. And the instrument of this judgment is first in this historical context, the the country of Babylon. But even Babylon is going to fall into the judgment of God and be consumed by the jealousy of God. But here's the result. Here's the result of God's judgment, this purifying judgment. Verse 9, for at that time, here's what God's going to do. I will change the speech of peoples to pure speech. 
so that all of them may call upon the name of the Lord and serve him with one accord. Serve him with unity, shoulder to shoulder, as it were. Just like God, when he dispersed the people with the languages of Babel, now he's going to bring them together in unity with one language, with one voice, with a purified tongue, with purified lips to worship him. And how's it going to come about? Through his judgment of purification. He will act. He will respond. He is going to take people that profane his name and reject his glory, and he's going to transform them into people who have lives of praise and lips of worship for this God, verses 9 and 10. This is reminiscent, and it helps us see from Ephesians 2, when, when Paul writes this, he says, remember that at one time you were separate from Christ. You were excluded from the citizenship in Israel and foreigners in the covenants, to the covenants of promise. You were without hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near. By what? By the blood of Christ. See, this is what it's pointing towards. This is how God is going to do this. As God pours out his wrath on Jesus Christ on the cross for our sin, and he pours out his judgment on our sin on Christ, as we are united with Christ, as we look to Christ and we seek him and seek his forgiveness, we're going to be brought in. And our lives are transformed by the wonderful grace, by the wonderful mercy of our Savior. The picture con continues, and, and really what we have painted here is, is an image of what we call the already not yet. We, we taste parts of this now. We, we taste some of this joy now of this transforming power of God's grace in our lives now, but we anticipate a future day. It's called the millennium, when Christ will return and he will restore his reign and his rule, and he will bring people together in unity, all true worshipers of God. And on that day, verse 11, you shall no longer be put to shame because of the deeds by which you rebelled against me. For then I'm going to remove all of that from your midst. All those who are proud, those exalted ones, they're going to be taken away. And you shall no longer be proud in my holy mountain but I'm going to leave in your midst. I'm going to leave in your midst a people that it's characterized by humility and lowliness, meekness. They shall seek refuge in the name of the Lord. And those who are left in Israel, they shall do no injustice and speak no lies. Nor shall there be found in the mouth any deceitful tongue. For they shall graze and lie down and none shall make them afraid. Just see the images of Revelation in the end when Christ returns and how He's going to restore all things. He's going to renew all things, even like in the Garden of Eden, but it's going to be even better. The pride of God's people is going to be transformed. We're going to live in total dependent reliance on Him by God's grace, and we're going to see His salvation and His glory for what it is. Our lips and our lives are going to proclaim His glory all the time. There's a total transformation of our lives. Verse 14 to 17 God cries out to us. Zephaniah cries out to us. Here's how we should respond. We should respond by rejoicing. And as we rejoice, look what God's going to do. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save, and he will rejoice over you with gladness. He's a poet as well. He's a singer as well. And when he sees the work of his hands in your life and how you've been transformed by his grace, he's going to rejoice and delight and sing over you. What an amazing thing. 
to have people that once were sinners, that once were opposed to God, and now we have been transformed, and the very God of heaven is rejoicing and singing over us. Why? Because we heeded his voice, and we sought his ways, and we repented of our sin, and we ran to Christ. Let me finish with a brief quote, and then just a description of what this would look like if we as people today embrace the grace of God, if we as people embrace Zephaniah's message that we did not run from this judge, but we ran to this judge, here's what this would look like. One man wrote this, no one is beyond hope. No one was further from God's mercy than the people of Jerusalem who spurned his love, yet he offered it to them again and again. In Christ, this love is offered to every person in every culture who will respond. God makes promises to the hopeless so that we might still turn and trust in him. If we as a people would embrace Zephaniah's message this morning in our lives, here's what I think what our church would look like. Here's what I think our lives would look like. Taking my cues from, from Zephaniah. We would be a people with a word focus. A text focus. Where we're continually being transformed and, and changed by the intake of God's word in our lives. We're continually taking our lives and, and holding it up to the mirror of God's word and being transformed by it. When we're convicted of sin, we quickly repent and we, we submit our lives to what God is saying. We are obedient to his commands and we display love to those that he has called us to love. We're quick to repent of sin. We have a, we have a deep trust in the promises of God and his provision for us. We don't, we don't look to man's ways. We don't look to pragmatic or pop psychology or theology. We look to Christ. We have a deep trust in the promise and provision of God. We draw near as a people and as individuals to God in prayer. Our lives are characterized by dependent prayer. We as leaders, as pastors, and as deacons of this church, we lead as God leads. We lead as Christ would lead. We lead as the good shepherd would lead. And all of us together, as Peter says, we wait and we pray and we hasten for the coming day of the Lord where he's going to make all wrongs right. And he's going to make everything beautiful and deliver us from our sin and the guilt of it. And finally, that we'd be a people characterized by rejoicing. Exuberant and rejoicing worship that this God has saved us. He's delivered us. And as a result of that rejoicing together, that we can't be quiet about it. We want other people to rejoice in this truth as well. Just like at the end of Zephaniah, where he calls to the nations to come in. The nations will come, the remnant from every nation, to worship this God.